Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia, and I am so glad you're here. I am a 20-something in my early 20s, and I was going through my fair share of shit show moments, and I'm sure there's more shit show moments to come. So much fun. But it's while I was going through these moments, I was realizing I'm probably not the only 20-something who feels this way. So I decided to start this podcast back in 2020, and it's been incredible. And I love interviewing these inspiring people. And I hope that through these stories, you're able to see yourself in these stories. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you would share it with a friend as well as leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. I put so much time and energy into this podcast and it would mean the world to me. So without further ado, let's get started. Today's guest is Adam. I love chatting with him. Adam was homeless and addicted to IV drugs in 2017. In November of that year, Adam had a series of spiritual experiences that changed his life forever. Adam went from 148 pounds, kicked out of a homeless shelter, and nearly dead from his addiction to finding recovery, writing his story into a best-selling book from Chains to Saved, speaking and sharing his story all over the world, and starting his company, Recovered on Purpose. With Recovered on Purpose, Adam teaches addicts in recovery how to put their stories together as a powerful message to share with the world so addicts suffering will always have a message of hope available. Adam and Recovered on Purpose have been featured in top industry publications like Recovered Today, Treatment Magazine, Authority Magazine, and The Good Men Project. Adam's mission in life is to add purpose and meaning to the life of addicts in recovery through storytelling so they would never have to go back to the way they once were. We go into so many incredible things in this interview from his journey with addiction and how he was able to recover. We go into relapsing. We go into the shame around relapsing, why it's so important to recover out loud as well as his biggest lessons that he's learned from starting Recovered on Purpose and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this interview. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. So I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we might resonate with. Let's start there. Okay. Well, uh, my 20s were kind of preceded by my late teens, which started me on a path that it just got bad. I started using drugs when I was young. And then when I was 19, on September 28, 2008, I've been out drinking and partying like most nights my freshman year of college. And I woke up at 4.47 a.m. to my phone ringing and vibrating down by my leg. And I swam through the soft sheets to find my hard phone with the bright screen that read 4.47 a.m. And my best friend Chucker was calling me. And I remember having the conscious choice that I could either answer the phone like I always do with, hey, what's up, Chuck? Or I could answer the way I was feeling with, uh, hello. And in my still drunken state, I chose the latter, to which a soft voice replied, hey, what's up? Why are you calling me this late? I was just calling to say hi. Don't call me this late again. And I hung up on him and he shot himself. And for nearly a decade, eight years after that, I was unable to share that phone call with anyone as I bottled it down deeper and deeper and deeper with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol were no longer a way to party and have fun. They were now a way to mask my emotions, mask the way that I feel, deal with life. And it took me to a place where I couldn't live anymore. I was able to, you know, keep a job. I was what some people call a functioning addict. But is it really functioning to go out selling door to door, make six figures and spend every dollar you make putting heroin in your arm? That was what my 20s were. From 20 to 28, it was just 
going door to door, selling something, doing well with it, but coming home and having this secret dark life that, you know, it just got worse and worse. And it ended with, by the time I was 26, 27, 28, I was homeless. I got kicked out of a homeless shelter. So I was like super homeless and I was unable to stop using the drugs. And this is coming from someone that, you know, I went to Columbine High School. I was a all-state football player, captain of the football team my senior year when we won state, captain of the wrestling team, you know, and all these great things didn't do it for me to have 20s where I was growing, where, where you shouldn't be wasting your 20s. I even remember someone when I was 20, 23, 24 years old, my addiction was getting worse and worse. And, and my friend who was like 34, 35 and was successful, but he hadn't started until his 30s. He was like, don't waste your 20s, bro. Don't waste them. And you know, I'm able to take the stories and everything that happened in my 20s and now use it for good. But you know, looking back, I wish I would have told somebody what actually happened that night so that I could start the healing process and I didn't have to go as far down into my addiction that I did. Mm, wow. There's so much to unpack there. And there's so many things that happened in your twenties. And I'm wondering, like, I guess where I want to start off at is did anyone kind of know about your addiction? Like, did anyone at work know? Did anyone around, you know, like, was there any like signs that were like that you needed help? Was there anything like kind of going on in the outside that people could tell? Right around 20 or 21 is when it was super obvious. Like within within a year of, of Chuck's suicide, I, I was using drugs every single day and I was using Oxycontin. And that means that if I don't have Oxycontin, I am sick and I'm different. And, you know, when I have Oxycontin, I'm like, super high energy and like sweaty and all this stuff. So everybody knew, but there was nothing anybody could do. And at these companies that I was working for, the first time I went door to door was for my own company. I built a pest control company with, with my partner and we went from a truck and pesticides and his apartment. And we started January of 2012. And I went door to door that year and sold 967 accounts, which is a huge number door to door with a needle in my arm. You know, so being able to, you know, produce like that kind of made it so that people were willing to push to the side that I'm going home and putting everything in my arm. Wow. How were you able to do both? How could you produce and do like, how how did you do that? Because I feel like it would take away from the other. You know, I didn't, I was always really good at communication and I really, really liked what I did because I got to talk to thousands of people every single year. And I love people, love hearing people's stories, love, you know, learning from different people. And what's interesting is that my heart never left due to drugs. I went to the doors and, you know, I was the reason why I was able to sell so much and, and do really well was because I could find out quickly if what I was selling was good for you. You know, if, if we should continue this conversation and if it wasn't, I would leave. I wouldn't try to like lie or do this or do that. So I actually really enjoyed going door to door. It just so happened that I was doing it high. <laughs> mm. And like, what was the moment for you of like, this has got to change? Was there a moment where you're like, this, this just can't be my life anymore. Like I can't continue with this. Like how long did it kind of take for you to get there? The, the sad part is, you know, 20, 21 years old, I started trying to quit using. I had dozens and dozens of times where I would take all the dope that I had, I would put it in the toilet and flush it saying, you know, I'm never going to use again. I'm done with this stuff. I can't do this anymore. And if you would have strapped a lie detector test to me, I would have passed. I am never going to use again. And then in the morning, I pawned my TV or something. I didn't have the, the capability to stop. 
And no matter how bad it got and how bad I wanted to stop, I didn't know how. I didn't even know that it was possible for someone like me. And how did you actually stop? Like, what was that process? Like, how, how were you able to end that? Yeah, so it was November 7th, 2017. And I had used the day before. And at this point, I've been homeless. I was kicked out of the homeless shelter. I was in Billings, Montana. And for months being homeless, I was going to two 12-step meetings every single day. I was going to church every Saturday, church every Sunday, and this Bible study every single Tuesday. So November 7th was a Tuesday. And I'm, I'm 215 pounds right now. At this point, I'm 148 pounds. And before this Bible study, I was sitting in this car that this girl let me borrow. And it wasn't stolen, but I did have to start it with a screwdriver because uh, that's just how we lived back then. But I'm sitting in this car and I had this epiphany that I've tried everything. I have officially tried everything to get clean and sober and I can't do it. And I sat back in that seat and I said audibly to God, I'm done. I'm not going to this Bible study. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to these meetings. Uh, just let me die. And when I said that, I remember how real I was being. You know, I didn't want this life anymore. I didn't want to live anymore. It was, it was no longer like, I just want to stop using drugs. It was no longer, I, I just don't want to live like this anymore. It was like, please just let me die. I can't go on like this. And he whispered to me, and it's like this, this soft voice that hits my heart. He said, it's time, go. And when he said that, the first thing that I felt and thought was anger. Because what's different about this time? How is this time any different from all the times that I've dumped all the dope in the toilet and then gone the next morning to go pick up? What's different about this time? So I start screaming and I'm yelling at him and I'm crying and I'm like hitting the roof of the car and I'm hitting the steering wheel and I'm saying, what's different about this time? God, please just let me die. I can't do this anymore. Please just let me die. And I'm crying and I'm crying. And this, go, this is going on for a few minutes and he lets me get it all out. And then, and then I kind of calm down and he just repeats himself and he said, it's time, go. So, and at the time, I don't know what that even means. I don't know what he means by it's time. I don't know what I have to do, nothing like that. But, and I didn't get this like overwhelming sense of Holy Spirit power. Like I am clean, I am recovered. I just got this sense of willingness that I had never had in my life. I had never been able to muster up this, this, you know, sense that someone else knows better than me. I can't figure this out. And I have to listen and do whatever God guides me to do. So I go to the Bible study, I bust the doors open, I swing them open, I'm 12 minutes late, all the guys are in the middle of prayer, and I interrupt them, and I drop down on my knees, and I throw my hands up, and I'm like, guys, please help me, I can't stop, I used again, please help me, please help me, and I'm crying, and, and the thing is, they've been seeing me every Tuesday for months, and I say something like this every single Tuesday, but the difference that I had this time in my heart was I was no longer throwing my hands up to a fellowship. I wasn't throwing my hands up to this Bible study or to a pastor or to a church. I was throwing my hands up in surrender to God, asking him to help me and telling him I will do whatever you say. And we got through the Bible study and you know, at the end, one of the elders comes up and he's like, hey, I just got a word. I need to pray for you, bro. I said, OK. And he sits me down on this ottoman in the middle of the room. Everybody left except for him. And then George, who was another elder and Brendan, who was my best friend who led that Bible study. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he starts praying for me. But he's like praying in a way nobody had ever prayed for me before. He was yelling at different things that he saw inside of me and telling them to leave addiction, leave in the name of Jesus 
depression, leave in the name of Jesus and yelling at all these things. And as he's doing this, I'm actually legitimately feeling some kind of weight coming off of me, right? And five days later, Brendan comes and picks me up and he takes me to breakfast at IHOP, International House of Pancakes. And that's the awesome thing. And, and I credit my ability to connect with God and my ability to recover to having Brendan at that time in need. Because through all those months, he was picking me up from the homeless shelter, taking me to lunch, taking me to breakfast, taking me to church, Bible study. And then when I got kicked out, you know, he would still pick me up wherever I was. He even let me stay on his couch for a little while. And this day, we're sitting at IHOP. And we're talking and I'm all excited because I have five days clean and sober. You know, that's a miracle for me. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm recovering. I'm going to do it and all this. And we're talking. And then I get this text message on my phone. I just have this little foot phone and I open it up and it's from my dope dealer. He's like, Hey bro, I just got some new stuff. It's fire. I'll give you a free 20 to try out. And right in that moment, when I read that text, I felt something go in through the top of my head, all the way through my body. My toes were tingling. My fingers were tingling. I lost my peripheral vision. So all I could see was the phone. And then my thumbs just started texting back. And it was like, it was in like King James. It was like, ye shall not text me again. Thou hast texted me for the last time. It was going crazy. And then at the end of the text, it said, and fear the pain you cause your son because your son has been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And then right when I finished texting, I feel that thing leave all the way through my toes, all the way up my body and out my head. I was like, what the heck? And I, and I look at the phone and I read it. I'm like, what was that? That was not me. And I show it to Brennan. I was like, dude, that was not me. That was not me. He was like, okay. And I push send, close it. I'm putting it in my pocket and I'm in the middle of a sentence. I'm like, dude, I don't know what that was. I don't know who that was. And I look back up and Jesus is sitting across from me. The entire restaurant had completely disappeared. There was just this light coming from behind him. He was just smiling. And people ask me what he looked like in that moment. And everything I'm explaining to you happened in a split second, like half a second or less. I look up, Jesus is there. And it wasn't so much what he looked like. But the only way I can compare what happened in that moment was similar to when I would shoot up heroin. It was as if all of my problems, all of my feelings, all of my thoughts and emotions, everything I'm worrying about left with one flood into my body. But the difference this time was that when everything left me, I was then overwhelmed with a sense of peace, a sense of love, a sense of value and purpose that I hadn't felt in so long in my life, if ever. And I immediately knew who he was, immediately knew what was happening. I fell with my face to the table and my hand up. I said, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Came back up and he was gone. And I haven't used since. And the interesting thing is that I wasn't, cured in that moment. I still had these cravings. I still like for the next 21 days, I was shaking with cravings, shaking with withdrawals, like needing drugs. And the only thing that helped me in that time was when I was sitting down and working on the 12 steps. I worked the 12 steps, not associated with any specific fellowship, but I did them exactly how they're directed in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a sponsor, same thing. He picked me up at 6.30 a.m. every morning from the sober living house. And we went to a movie theater that he managed, went in the basement and we uh, did the work. We read the book and just did what it said. And on day 25, he came and picked me up and we did my first ever fifth step, which is basically where you, you basically confess. You say all the things that you did in your life. You kind of tell your story, things that you, you did to hurt people, things people did to hurt you. And you find kind of how you, you know, react to things, who you are. And I, nothing really happened that day. But the next morning, day 26, clean and sober, he came and picked me up 6.30 a.m. in his 1983 mailman Jeep. 
And as we're driving to the movie theater, I look over at this beautiful sunrise. And for the first time since I was 12 years old, I had no desire to drink or use. It completely left me and it hasn't returned. And that's why I tell people, you know, you have to tell your recovery story because there's so many different paths. There's so many, there's so many ways that people recover, but my story, not everybody has an experience like that with Jesus. And I have to let people know that Jesus came and he saved me. Yes. But he didn't just do all the work for me. He told me that he's with me to do the work with him. And that's, that's how I got clean and sober. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I'm wondering if you could go back to yourself at 21 when you were having that experience, is there anything you would have said to yourself? Is there anything you would have done differently or anything you would have said to yourself while you were like relapsing or anything you would want to do in that moment? Yeah. You know, I've thought about this quite a bit because I hear people say, uh, you know, the saying, if I could go back and change it, I wouldn't because I am who I am now. And I think that's crap. I think people just say that because, you know, they can't go back. If I was able to go back and change things, I absolutely would. I would love to talk to myself, tell him, you know, our potential and, but in like the reality of the potential that we have and the dangers of where we're going. And if I could take the video from 2015 of when the police found me dead behind the wheel of a car from a heroin overdose, and I have the body cam footage of that. If I could show that to him and say, this is where you're headed, you know, it's, It's so difficult to get into the head of an addict that doesn't want to stop, though. So I don't even know if me at 21 meeting me at 33 would even listen to me. Mm. And I'm curious from from your view of like when you're going through that and when you're relapsing and when part of you is like, why can't I just get this? Like, why can't I get just get this right? Is there anything you did for yourself to like release the shame or like, what did you do to kind of work on that part of you? That's like, why can't I get this? Like, why can't I just like get better? You know, a lot of the time I had to tell the people around me that I'm an addict just to get it out in the air and let them know, you know, I would rather not talk about it a lot because there's, I feel like there's nothing I can do right now, but there's still value that I can add to this world. I was even coached by very high level people while I was in my addiction. I was coached by the the number two fastest growing CEO based on Inc. 500 magazine in 2016 in the worst of my addiction. In 2015, in the beginning of 2016, I was being coached by a New York Times bestselling author, number 47 speaker in the world, talking every single week and, and texting every day. And the first call, I remember having the first call with him and within three minutes, like he could just tell there was something there that I had to tell him. And I told him, I, you know, I use heroin. And then we just kind of had to put that on the side because, you know, there's other things we can work on because there's nothing, there's nothing, he's not a specialist in addiction. So I was constantly working on things outside of my addiction in order to not think about it. And I literally would ask people not to talk about it because it just felt so hopeless. And what's something you think we don't realize about addiction? A lot of people think it's a choice and it's just wrong. It's just wrong. And they'll try to tell you like, well, at some point you chose to try drugs and this and that, but they've done polls and a vast majority of teenagers admit to drinking and experimenting with other drugs. The thing about addicts is we have a reaction to things that alter our mind, which is an allergy. It's an allergy. It triggers something called the phenomenon of craving that other people, normal people don't have. We try it once and we love it. It's as if we arrive. 
it's not like we use drugs and go back to work Monday through Friday and don't use drugs. It's not like we can do Coke one night a month or something like that. It's like, no, nah, we need to, we need to have this for work. We need to be able to find out how to live with this. This is life. And people don't understand the, the thought process because they don't have it. They're able to put it down. It's not a choice. And I also, something that people don't know is that treatment for addicts is very difficult to get. All the treatment centers that you see are for private insurance. That's for having policies that, you know, you get from work or you get from a family member or, you know, something like that. But a vast majority of addict suffering have no insurance or state funded insurance. And the state funded treatment centers around the country are huge waiting lists, less than great care. And the reason why a lot of treatment centers aren't popping up that accept Medicaid and state funded, you know, insurance is because the states don't pay. Private insurance is paying 11 to 25 times what state funded insurance is paying. So from a business perspective, no one's going to open a treatment center for addicts that really need it. You know, no one's going to do that. And there has to be reform. Something else that people don't know is that there needs to be a change in the all around policy behind drugs. There's, there's all kinds of different crimes and things that are associated with the drug war, quote, quote unquote, and it's killing more people than they're letting us know. They're making money on the drug war, and there's ways that we can change it that will take money out of their pockets, but save lives. And I'm wondering, is there anything in terms of like being friends or being like a family member of an addict that we can do, or is there anything that you feel like would have been helpful? You know, what was really helpful for me, for my loved ones, is when they got to the point where, like my mom, she stopped bringing it up on every single call that we had. She stopped constantly trying to call me and tell me that she's worried and this kind of stuff. And she prayed for me and she loved me, period. And then what that did was when I was ready, I knew I could come to her. I knew I could come to my family once that time was right. And if we're constantly stuck in a circle of trauma with our family, we're going to try to get away from you, constantly disappointing you and constantly getting shamed and, and this kind of stuff inadvertently. You don't intentionally shame us, but constantly telling us we need to do this and we need to do that. When we know we need to, we just can't. <laughs> and the best way to help an addict that's suffering is just love them, love them. You have to have boundaries. Like if you, if your addict is stealing, you can't have them in the house, period. And a, a majority of addicts don't, but some do from their family. And if they're doing that, you have to have boundaries, but that doesn't mean you don't love them. Yeah. Just love them. That's the answer. Mm. And from all the work you're doing now to help other people go through recovery, is there anything you feel like you learned through that process that you didn't know going through your own recovery or anything you found interesting about watching them go through recovery? No one's path to recovery is the one for everyone. I can tell my story. I can say how I did it. I can say how I did the 12 steps all together in under 45 days. And I've also met a ton of people who have never done the steps and are clean and sober. I've met a ton of people who have done the steps over a two-year process and are clean and sober. And you have to find the people that it works for though. Like my way of recovery, I've helped dozens of people find recovery through doing the 12 steps in rapid succession very quickly. I've helped people do that, but that's the people that are able to do my path. And that's why I coach addicts in recovery to tell their story of how they recovered because every single addict that has recovered 
has a way to recover. And if they're telling their story about how they did, there's people out there suffering that will find recovery through their story. And how long was it from when you recovered to like, I have to share this. Like, I know like there's so much that people can learn from this. I know I can help so many people with their recovery. I'm wondering what that process was like for you. Yeah, pretty quickly in my early recovery, I was loud about it. I was loud about, you know, how it worked for me. I was loud about how bad it was a couple months ago or a few months ago. And I was excited about recovery because I wanted to die. And now I'm completely alive and a completely different person. So I wanted to tell everybody. November or September 28th of 2019, so almost two years after recovery, I went to a conference, a business conference, and it was a how to bring God into business. And it's called the 100X Academy. And I, I went there on a whim. Didn't know anybody, just saw an ad. I was like, I need to go. And the first night I was worshiping in the front, Jesus culture was playing on the stage. And then I just heard God's voice into my heart. And he said, your new company's called Recovered on Purpose. I was like, huh, okay, that's good. <laughs> and so I got on my phone and I looked on GoDaddy. I bought the domain. I got on Secretary of State, made sure it wasn't taken and, and took care of everything right there on the worship floor. And then later on that day, or later on during that event, this guy came up and started talking about, you know, how to publish a book, how to write and publish a book. And I had always wanted to write a book. And I had, you know, thousands of words written for different types of books, but never like put anything together. And then the way he talked about it, and he simplified it, and he showed how you can do it quickly, or you can take your time. And this is a process. And I was like, I'm, I'm gonna buy that course, you know, so I, I got his course. And but before I bought the course, I was sitting in the audience and I heard that voice again. And it said, if you publish your book for your two years clean and sober, you're going to inspire so many others to do it and share their story. And when I heard that, I was like, well, that's five weeks away. You know, how am I going to do that? And so I bought this course. It was a 90 day course, but I just zoomed through it. I, and I sat down and I wrote and published my book in five weeks and it became a number one bestseller. And I started getting emails and messages from people all over the world that were finding recovery from my story. And within a month, it was actually on December 6th. So exactly a month after I published the book, I was at another conference and I was standing in the back and I was just, just standing there and enjoying myself. And this guy walks up to me and he has a copy of my book and he walks up to me and he hands it to me. He's like, bro, your book changed my life. I have three weeks clean. Will you sign it for me? And I was like, yes. And his name's Israel. He's still clean to this day. And after that, I decided to do a course where I coached addicts in recovery to write and publish books. And you can see some of them back here. We got some books out of it. And one of them, Brittany's book, she lost her four kids to like CPS or, or whatever the government was in her state during her addiction. And she ended up getting them back in her recovery. And after writing her book and her story, the DA that prosecuted her bought a bunch of copies of her book and gives her book to women that he's prosecuting that are in the uh. same situation that she was. And that's the power of a recovery story because when we're telling it, we don't know exactly where it's going to go. I didn't know where my book was going to go. I didn't know people were going to hit me up when they got out of jail, the day they got out of jail, say, hey, bro, my mom sent me your book when I was in jail and I read it. And then my whole pod read it and a bunch of people gave their life to Jesus. I was like, what? How could I possibly plan that? I'm not going to go to a go to a jail unless I get invited necessarily, you know, and that's the power of a book. 
And then I started sharing video. And then I, I, my friend has a YouTube channel and he asked me if we could make a video of my story for his YouTube channel. He set up a couple lights in front of me and a camera. And by this time I had done a bunch of podcasts and things. So I was able to tell my story and I did it in one take and you know, he made the video and then within a couple months, the video went viral and I started getting messages and emails and stuff again. And I'm like, holy cow. So if we as recovered addicts can share our stories by book and save lives, we need to do it. If we can share our stories by videos and have people hitting us up from Sweden or South Africa or every state in the United States by asking for help or telling me that they gave their life to Jesus during my story. You know, and that's, that's, that's my recovery. My recovery is about Jesus. He saved me. And every single person's story has that ability because there's people out there that need to hear it. I love that. And how powerful it is that you got those confirmations like so, so fast, like after creating your book, after having that. And I'm curious, like with your relationship with God, has he always been that loud in your life or how, how did that kind of evolve for you? Yeah, I didn't grow up in a religious household, but when I was nine, 10 years old, I think it was like, it was shortly after the, the Columbine shooting. Cause I was at Columbine Hills elementary when it happened. And it was the first experience I had with anything like fear and, and trauma and things like that. And for some reason I started sensing that I'm not alone. I started sensing that there's something higher. And I had this friend, Ben, who, you know, his family went to church. So we had a sleepover at my house <laughs> and we were in the basement and I just asked him, I was like, Hey, Ben, who is, who is God? What is God? And you know, we're 10 years old. So he's like, well, all I know is that you have to accept Jesus in your heart. And I said, well, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, we have to get on our knees. So in my mom's basement, two 10 year old boys facing each other on their knees. And he says, do you accept Jesus in your heart? And I said, yes. And every time I tell the story, it's happening right now. It happens the exact same way it did right then. I get chills. I feel the spirit with me. And for the first time, I had that experience and knowing that God exists, that God is with me. And that doesn't mean that from that point, I lived a perfect life, obviously. But throughout my life, I always knew he was there. Throughout my addiction, I always talked about God. I would talk about how much I loved him and, and you know, how much, how good he is and all of this stuff. But I always felt ashamed to talk to him. I felt like I wasn't good enough. I felt like I'm just doing all of these bad things. So how could he possibly love me? I love him so much. You know, I know that he's real. I know that he's there. I've had these experiences and all of this, but how can I talk to him? You know, with all of these things I've done. And then in my first 30 days of recovery, I was sitting in a 12-step meeting and it was as if a light turned on because all that time, I loved God, but I was edging him out and not allowing him to tell me how much he loves me. He created me first to be loved by him, then for me to love him. And when I had that epiphany, it was as if all the lights turned on with my relationship with him. Because in my recovery, I haven't been perfect either. No one is perfect. But now, no matter what happens, I have someone to go through things with. I, I never have to feel like I'm alone. Before, even though I always knew he was there, I still got lonely a lot because I felt so ashamed to talk. So if anyone's out there and you're having that experience where either don't know how to talk to him or you feel ashamed to talk to him or any of that, the amazing thing about him is all you have to say is, God, if you're there, will you start talking to me? God, if you're real, will you, will you show yourself to me? And do it with a real heart. And every single time he does. 
Your story is so beautiful and there's, there's so many layers and it's so beautiful that now you're creating this ripple effect in your community. And now all these other people are getting to experience the transformation and then they're creating this ripple effect. And it's just really cool to see. And I'm wondering if, if people could only read like one chapter of your book, like what would that one chapter be? Before I answer that, if they want my book for free, digital and audio copy, they can go to fromchainstosave.com. If they were to read one chapter, it'll pull them into the rest of them. <laughs> like, I, already, I already told you the story of, of meeting Jesus. You know, I've got some stories in there where there was a very, very dark time when I was seeing other things other than Jesus. One time I was, so I was in Las Vegas and I was walking down an alley with a prostitute because she was going to help me get some dope. And I'm looking over at her and I'm talking, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I want a gram of this and I want a gram of this and talking. And then I heard a voice, like this one is different than God. It was different than God. I heard a voice from above my head say, turn around. And as I turned around, my hand was already coming up and there was a guy running at me four steps from behind me with his fist like this about to knock me out from behind. And all I said was wrong guy. And he fell down trying to, trying to turn around and run. And then he got up and fell down again. And then he got up and ran away. So things like that happening throughout my recovery, I just have my, my book is all stories of spiritual experiences that I had in my life that I've had in my life, you know? And do you think someone that's going through addiction has to read it or do you think anyone can read it? Anyone can read it. If you are anybody with being affected by addiction, which is 47% of Americans, the book will help. It's a, it's a story of how someone from the lowest of lows can make it out to recovery as possible. And the beautiful thing, I, I wrote it for addicts. I wrote it to help addicts. I wrote it to show people that God is real, spiritual experiences are real, and that addicts are people too having their own experiences. But I've, had, I've been hit up by people that have nothing to do with addiction, that found God through it. I've, I've been hit up by people that it didn't make them believe in God, but it gave them you know encouragement to or motivation to do things in their life. And it's a short read. It's two hours and 46 minutes on Audible. So... I made it so that it's, you know, it, it flows, it's a story and it gives hope. Mm, I love that. What's the biggest thing that you think you learned about business by creating Recovered on Purpose? Yeah. What I have specifically about creating Recovered on Purpose. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've built multiple businesses and even in my recovery, I built a, a healthcare marketing company that turned into multi-million and did really well. I had 23 employees and everything. But at a point, I felt completely empty, making more money than I'd ever made. I had a nice car, a nice slingshot motorcycle, this downtown apartment, and two years into my recovery. And that's when I found that Bring God into Business and went to that conference. And I would say what I learned about business is if you're doing something that is a service to people in need, and your heart is behind it, and you believe, and you're not willing to stop no matter what, then it's absolutely worth it. Everything I'm doing, people told me not to not to publish my book. People I love told me that, you know, those stories are going to make people think this or this or that. And then when I published my book, they're all like, wow, this is actually really good. And then people will tell me, you know, you can't rest your future on addicts. And I'm like, watch me because I know that what I'm giving is going to help millions of people. I know what I'm doing if I if I continue doing it and put in the hours and put in the work like I'm doing, if I don't stop and the, the need is there and what I have is giving and, and filling that need. And my heart is in it so much that I don't have to listen to people telling me that the naysayers, the people saying, well, you should have a plan B, you know, you should have this going on. I decided I made the decision to cut off all my plan Bs. 
and go at this and do this with everything I have because I want to help so bad. Seeing from where I came from, knowing that there's millions of Americans in that state that don't know that they have hope. And I have something that can make it so that all of them can find hope and recovery. I don't care about anything else. I love that because whenever you have a plan B, you give opportunity to get away from your plan A. Exactly. And I love that you mentioned that. And I love that you also mentioned to having a business before that was doing well, but you didn't feel well, because I feel like those are two key points that we always overlook and we always kind of escape from. Yeah, absolutely. What's something right now that you're excited about? It could be anything going on in your life, anything you're putting out, anything that's really lighting you up right now. Yeah, I'm right before we got on this podcast, I finished a new clothing line and I'm excited. I've been working on it for in total, you know, a couple months, but actually on the site for a couple weeks. And the point of it is to wear our recovery in a way that opens up conversations to people that see it. If you're walking down the street and you have one of these shirts and there's a mom of an addict walking down the street, she might come up and talk to you. I designed the shirts to do that, you know, and to be loud and proud about it, to recover out loud so that others don't have to suffer in silence. That's actually one of the shirts also. And I'm excited to get people excited about wearing their recovery, right? And then I have my digital course that I launched just under two months ago. And it's going, I mean, the people in it are doing really, really well. I've had calls with people that are just fired up about sharing their story about the content in it because I, I train specifically how to take any recovery story, put it in my blueprint and tell it in a way that that helps addict suffering. Like, cause we all have a story. We all have so many experiences, but if we just get up and get on a podcast without a plan of how we're gonna get a message across, you know, if we just get up there just to tell stories about what happened in addiction, we're not gonna help anybody, but there's a way to do it. And the people going through the course are just coming back with all of these amazing things to say with these incredible stories that they're telling me. And I'm really excited about the coaching calls that I'm having with people. I'm excited to, you know, I haven't shared this publicly, but I have a, I have a TED talk March of 2023 and I start writing and planning and everything next month that's on the, on the agenda. So for the next, what, five, six, seven, eight months, I'm going to be practicing and perfecting my TED talk. Mm, That's so cool. And I'm curious if you know yet, what, what's going to be one of the main points of your TED talk? That our recovery stories are the greatest weapon against the epidemic that's going on right now, that we have to recover out loud, not only by telling our friends and family and going into meetings and doing things like that, but by being very public, like being able to do, I mean, we have social media, we have things that have never been available before. And the anonymous fellowships, I am all for 100%. The traditions of not going out publicly and saying, I'm a member of this fellowship, you know, there's a specific reason for that. But I believe that addicts need in recovery need to stop being anonymous public. Personally, they need to talk about how they recovered from this and how they did it. You know, they don't have to say which fellowship they're a part of. They can say the 12 steps if they did the 12 steps. But, you know, if there were 10,000 me's, people doing what I'm doing, speaking, getting on podcasts, writing books, telling their story, that would mean the reach would be the planet. Every single person suffering would hear the message they need to hear. That's my belief. And right now, there's a specific number of recovery influencers. And I love them all. They're doing amazing things. But there's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 with followings and things. And if there were 10, 20, 
30,000. That means that people are recovering 10,000 times more. That's my belief. There needs to be more stories out there. Yeah. And I'm wondering when you start initially working with them, do they, are they like right away, like all for telling their story or does shame come up for them or like, oh, my story's not good enough. I'm kind of wondering what they say once you tell them that. So it's all over the place. And that's in the first module of the course <laughs> is, is getting through stuff like that. Because a lot of the things we went through, people that haven't been through things like that don't understand. Like you, like you just don't understand what it's like to stick a needle in your arm against your will crying. You know, I don't want to do this, but I have to. And it's, there's a shame. It's, it's re-traumatizing sometimes, but being able to talk to someone else about it, that's how it's set up. I set up so that you can, you have a list of people. And then when you come up with a story that you want to tell, or if you have shame around it, you can hit me up with it. Or you have a list of people that you can contact and say, Hey, you know, can I tell you this quick story real quick? I've never told anybody, but I just need to get it out. Because once you tell, once I told that story about Chuck, once I told the truth about that story for the first time in eight years since it happened, I was then able to share it with everyone to heal. As soon as you share it once, you heal from it. It, ta it takes the power away from it. And for the people that think that, you know, their story isn't good enough and this and that, which is, it's common, but it's crap. It's not true because less than 7%, some studies are showing two, 3% of addicts find long-term recovery. If you did, you have a story about how to do it that apparently 93% or more don't have. And you have to tell it, you have to tell it. Cause some people, when they hear my story, they're like, well, I, I never had an experience like that meeting Jesus face to face. And I'm like, I, I know I get it, you know, but that not everybody needs that, you know, and not everybody has to have that experience because some people are of the educational variety. That's where like, as you're going through recovery, you learn from the people around you and you constantly like learn from this person, you take this step, you learn from this person, you take this step. And those people have to teach how to do that to the people that are have that personality type, that have that recovery type. So every story has incredible value because if your story saved one life, what's the value of that? Yeah. What's one non-negotiable for you every day that you do? Make my bed. I'll give you that one. Non-negotiable every single day, make my bed. You know, 71% of people that make their bed say that they're happy compared to 62% that don't. You're 20% more likely to enjoy what you do for work. There's all kinds of stats. And people that make their bed have 25% more sex. So <laughs> not the, the answer I was expecting. I was expecting something like journaling, something meditation, working out. I wasn't expecting that answer. Working, working out five days a week, you know, not every day. And then time blocking journaling is, uh, is five days a week. Weekends, I, I, you know, I go at it. So yeah. Okay. Perfect. And I have a final question for you. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, what would you want to tell him? Or if you don't want to tell him anything at all, that's an option as well. 20 year old me, I would tell him to focus on your relationship with Jesus now and buy Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Uh -huh. Awesome. And where can we find you? Where can we stalk you? Yeah, if you want, again, if you want to get my, uh, my book totally free, digital and audio copy, you can go to fromchains2save.com. And you can follow me on Facebook, all the socials, Recovered on Purpose. And you can go to recoveredonpurpose.com if you want to uh, check out more about the movement. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.